0: As-salamu alaykum, and welcome to another episode of the Dr. Will Show, where I interview educators and entrepreneurs on leveling up. Each episode, I zoom in someone who's dope. we we'll just sit back and have a conversation on what it means to live your best life. Now, if this is your first time checking out a podcast, this is the Mobile University of Entrepreneurs, and I'm your host, Dr. Will. Today's guest will be Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas. She will be on the show to talk about the work she's doing as a consultant, as well as preparing other educators to launch their own education-based focused business. And we're going to get those gems. Uh, to, so you who are starting out, or maybe you're starting and not getting the traction, uh, that you will be able to get some gems from that today. And in the show notes, we're going to be able to connect with her so you can actually join her get launched, you know what I'm saying, so you can learn how to get your business started. So for those who be listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible, will you please introduce yourself, Dr. Erica?
1: Of course. Uh, well, first off, thank you for this opportunity to be in community with you, with you and your audience and to talk about something that I'm super passionate about, Um, which is the intersection of purpose and profit. (laughs) And so um, I'll briefly introduce myself around the three places that I call home. Uh, The first place that I call home is the state of Mississippi because that is where my mother's story uh, started and begun. And so much of the legacy and history of my family um, because all of my mother's side of the family was born and raised in Mississippi. And then the second place that I call home is Columbus, Ohio which is where I grew up, um, where I went to undergrad. I am a proud Ohio State Buckeye. uh, And so I bleed scarlet and gray. Uh, And then the third place I call home is where I moved right after undergrad to begin my career in education. And so I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, I didn't know Anyone there, I packed up my little Ford Focus and made the drive from Columbus, Ohio to Charlotte to begin my career in education as a high school math teacher. Um, my kids completely changed my life. and. It was teaching in the classroom where I got really clear on my purpose, which was to, to fight and pursue educational equity for all students, but in particular students, uh, black students and students from low-income communities and students of color. And so my career, I transitioned to become an instructional coach an assistant principal, became middle a middle school principal. And then I decided that I want to study systems and really think about what does it actually take to create change at a system level within education, which led me to Cambridge, Massachusetts to start my full-time doctoral program at Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, which is where I graduated from a couple of months ago. And uh, during that time, I started my consulting business when I made the transition to to the full-time doctoral program. And then in March of 2020 is when I, birth to get launch consulting which is my business development program for educators phenomenal educators with a track record of results that are ready to find their profitable purpose and launch a consulting business to expand their impact and build their wealth so it's a little bit of my movie trailer of point a to now i wouldn't even call it point z but like maybe point g h and where i am now
0: I i hear it's interesting that you were like you know buckeye till I and you didn't start out with (laughs) you didn't start with like Harvard you know like I would assume most people would like throw the Ivy League out first you know the little pinky you know throw it out be like yo Mm -hmm.
1: yeah I mean I think that's interesting you know but what what I often say for people is that uh you know Ohio raised me North Carolina made me you know and so there is no Dr. JT, uh, there is no Harvard without all of the story that comes with it, even the story of before I even came to be of my mother's story, my grandmother's story, like all of that set the foundation for uh, where I am now. So so most certainly kind of starting at the origin, and the origin isn't Harvard. That is in harvard uh, thats one piece of my story. The origin is you know, all of the, the little mini moments and all the giants of whose shoulders I stand on, including my family, including my students, including my community, um, they are the reason why, you know, when I walked into a room, I walked in as one, but I stood as a thousand as Maya Angelou would say. And so uh, very much so just one part of a story.
0: Wow wow that's all right cambridge is beautiful people if you ever get a chance <laughs> to go it is it's 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 hard to explain because you know boston is a certain way and when you get off that train and you come up and you and you like Whoa, and you you come up from down under and you as soon as you pick your eyes up and you're like boom you set foot in cambridge it's like this looks nothing like boston yeah <laughs> oh <all>. yeah
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's like all the the brick sidewalk and it looks like a little Pleasantville yeah it's, it's a different vibe for sure.
0: No doubt that. So get a chance to go when you're in Boston so I had a great time hanging out there and the campus is beautiful as well so uh, it was awesome checking that out. So I'm always curious as to how people got to where they are uh, what did you think you would be doing when you were growing up and how did you find yourself in education?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's so interesting because when I look back on like even K to twelve, like what did I want to be when I grew up? I don't think I was actually really clear. I mean, I was a, a pretty good student. I mean, honor roll. Like I would get A's and B's in my sleep, and so. But like I don't think I was ever clear around like I want to be this thing. Um, and even when I went to to undergrad, um, I remember like the process of trying to choose a major and like. I was like, I don't know, like, what do I just like to do? <laughs> and like, I knew I was good at math because like I, I passed my AP calculus test. And so I was like, all right, I'm good at math. So like, let me explore this business administration or accounting route. And actually uh, I was in a internship program called en which places students of color into fortune 500 companies for summer internships, and it's intended to be a reoccurring internship from your first summer going into college all the way through graduation and eventually, you know, with the hopes of getting a job offer. So my first internship, 17 years old, going into Ohio State, I was interning with a big four accounting firm because I thought like, I like numbers, I like math, I think I want to be a business major. I think I want to do accounting and I hated it. (laughs) Like it was so boring. I was like, I do not want to do this, but I didn't know what else I kind of wanted to do. And in my head, I'm like, well, I love like fashion, but like, I also love like the number side of it. And then that's when I discovered fashion merchandising, which is basically all of the numbers and analytics behind, like, how do you actually determine projections around what's in season, what's going to sell? you know, what would be, you know, the next trend. And there's actually a whole science behind what you see in stores. There's actually different cities that different fashion merchandisers would be investigating and researching to then determine within the next 12 to 24 months, what would be, you know, the hottest trend. So like I got, that's what I switched my major to. Um, and so I also switched my internship through Inroads roads and was actually interning with the parent company of Express Limited Brands or the company was called Limited Brands, but they owned Express Limited, Victoria's Secret Bath and Body Works. So I actually had a reoccurring internship with them throughout uh, the remaining summers of of college. And even my my senior year, I was taking classes at night at Ohio State so that way I could work in their corporate office during the day and was traveling around the country. And there I was working in their uh, campus recruiting department Um, And that was actually in 2008 when the market crashed um, and they they were laying people off, (laughs) let alone extending offers. And so it forced me to rethink what my plan was. And that year, my major, which was in the College of Human Ecology, it merged with the College of Education. And so I started seeing these signs for a program called Teach for America. So I was like well let me start looking into this and like seeing and learning what it was more about and then that's when I got this language of achievement gap that now I call the opportunity gap but that's when I realized that actually my experience that I had as a black, black woman who graduated from public schools was an amazing student but then was on academic probation my first quarter at Ohio State I realized, oh, that's what that thing was. Um, So that's what inspired me to become a teacher. I applied to Teach for America. I got accepted. I was placed in Charlotte where I didn't have any family. I'd never been to Charlotte, but I, you know, said, well, I'm going to do it. This is the time. (laughs) Like I, I, you know, I can always come back home. Um, And what I, I saw as A two-year chapter that I would then reassess after that chapter to be able to figure out my next steps was actually the beginning of what is now a really, really beautiful narrative that all started with me and my kids in that classroom at Olympic High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, It completely set my path into what I consider to be my purpose now.
0: Hmm. So I want to throw this out there to you since you brought up your stint with Teach for America. For some people... They have certain feelings about Teach for America, particularly those who went to a traditional education program. Because, you know, like the, whether true or not, it's out there like, okay, you got a bunch of kids uh, from universities like your, you like where you graduated from, and Harvard and Yale going there to do that two year stint so they can look good. For the resume for the MBA program or for the law school or the med school etc um what were your experiences in teach for america that you felt were actually beneficial to you for when you actually got into the classroom
1: yeah so i mean i'll i'll name that you know before i was a Teach for america corps member i was a black woman who graduated from columbus public schools right and so you know, so much of my experience of why I became a teacher was deeply rooted in my own experience as, as a student, um, as a student whose mom was, I had the privilege of growing up with very educated parents, and my mom was a single parent, and so my mom was not the one at parent conferences. My mom was not the, the cupcake mom. Like she wasn't bringing the classroom snacks. My mom was like, I got to work. Um, and so I say that to say that, you know, I, I most certainly understand people's perception um, of teacher for America. Um, and I think the two things that I say to that is like my story is my story. And just like, you know, any other, you know, a level of identity that anyone has, like they're all black people on a monolith, <laughs> all women on a monolith. Um, and so uh, I, would, I, would, I would expect that just as I, you know, would wanna value someone for who they are, their pathway and their journey, I would want that same level of intentionality. And I also recognize that there are people who have had experience with that type of archetype of a teacher who's come who may not have had uh, uh, their intentions, may not have necessarily been centered in community and may have been centered within themselves. I want to also acknowledge that people have had that experience. And so I think it doesn't have to be either or. I think it's a both and that there are very much so people who are, are in the classrooms through Teach for America. Um, with Teach for America is actually the the has the highest placement of teachers of color within classrooms. There is no other program that places the same level of teachers of color within classrooms, which we have to recognize. And there are also still opportunities, right? And so I think it's not an either, or I think it's most certainly a both in. And personally for me and my story, um, I became a principal. (laughs) And Mm. so my goal wasn't to, to go to business school. It wasn't to go to law school. I became a principal Um, and the work that I'm doing now is still very much so deeply centered within our community, deeply centered and focused on kids. And I I can't say for sure that that would have been the case had I not done Teach for America because I was getting ready to go the corporate route um, and work for for a, a retail company. Um, and this, this, this created the pivot and I'm grateful and I'm thankful for the pivot. And I will also continue to hold accountable any organization um, to do right by our kids and to make sure that people that are in front of our, our kids are doing right by them too. So I think it's a both and. And I, 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 I hear folks when they have that perspective, I hold space for that perspective. And I also know that that, that isn't my story.
0: Mm, y'all gonna learn today, all right? <laughs> all right? So you're in the classroom and you're doing this work, you said Charlotte made you. What was your impetus for deciding that it was time to take those experiences, what you have learned, your mission to be there for Black children and children of color and those from lower means to where you decided, I need to dream beyond this classroom To actually start consulting for myself.
1: So, Doctor Will, can you repeat the question one more time for me? Because uh, you you cut out for a little section, and it might be on my end. um,
0: Okay, okay.
1: My internet was unstable, but if you just repeat the question for me.
0: So I was asking you about you were having the you had these experiences as a teacher. Uh, You said Charlotte built you. And when you're looking at your mission to be that light uh, for Black kids and students of color, those from lower economic means, when did it come to you to dream outside of the classroom in terms of monetizing what you were doing so you could make a larger impact outside of the walls of your building?
1: Yeah. So... Uh, I'll, I'll share that, you know, when I became a principal, I felt like I hit a jackpot. And I, and when I say jackpot, I mean, in terms of purpose, like I was, I very much so, and still to some extent today, very much so goal-driven. I always had a, the next goal lined up. And the moment I became a principal, I was like, I don't think I need another goal because I'm so fulfilled and what I'm doing. I had the best school community of a, about a thousand students, 150 staff members who would ride or die for our kids. And we did some incredible work, incredible work. And so I was like, I don't, I, I, I feel like this is, this position was made for me and I want to, I want to be present in this chapter. And I don't, I, I'm, I don't feel inclined to think about the next thing. And then a school board decision happened. And so it was a, it was a decision that oftentimes you know, happens in many different school districts where a decision is made to and not with. And my experience of that decision was that it was actually creating additional inequities, that it was an equitable decision and not it was not made in partnership with families. Um, And so in that moment, I saw the pattern and saw the cycle, which I knew, but now I was seeing it at a system level. I had seen it at the classroom level. I'd seen it at a school level. And at each level, I was able to do something about it. I was able to interrupt the pattern and create a new pattern. And now I was in this position and it was a position of power. I was a principal, right? And I held the power responsibly, but I was in this position of power and the cycle of inequities was now continuing. And even in a position of power, I felt like I couldn't do anything about it. And I'm like, if I feel this way as the principal and I'm in a position of power, just, we can't even, I mean, we can fathom what parents and and families feel like, right? And so it was that moment where, and i realized when I look back over, you know, my professional experience, every decision, every transition that I've made in my career has always been inspired by some inequity that I have experienced and feeling obligated to do something about it. And so when I had that experience, my moral compass wouldn't allow me to stay, even though it was a job that I loved. I was mm-hmm. like, I, I actually don't feel like I morally could, could stay and lead through something that I don't agree with. And so I made a really, really tough decision to leave the role, which I honestly had to grieve that decision after feeling like I had arrived to at least my destination for, I don't know for how long but I feel like this is something that makes me so happy. I made the decision that I was gonna have to leave the role and I didn't know what I was gonna do next. And I stumbled upon the, the, the doctoral program at Harvard that I just completed and it felt like it was a fit for me, even though I had to deal with some of my own mindset issues of, well, can I go to Harvard? <laughs> like, am I a fit for Harvard? I had to deal with all of that. And I thank God for my best friend and for people who, who genuinely love me, who believe in me, even when I don't, um, who pushed me through that decision. And so I applied, not knowing if I was going to get in, and this was around October. And I told myself, all right, Well, if I do get in, I'm going to have to continue to bring in some type of income because even as a full-time student, I need, I need income. Um, And if I don't get in, I need income. And so like, I, I don't know what the next thing will be, but let me try this consulting thing because best case scenario, if I get into this program this will help me make the transition because at that time I had no savings left, which is a whole nother conversation of how I was a principal. I didn't have savings. I was underpaid even in a position of power. So teachers are underpaid and so are principals, our whole entire profession is undervalued and underpaid. Um, But I I actually could not afford to make the transition. So I was like, if I get accepted, this will help me make the transition financially. Um, And if I don't get accepted, this will help me sustain myself and experiment to maybe figure out what's next. And so it was a blessing to of course get into the program. Um, And so I started my consulting business in October of 2017. I found out I got into the program that following February or March. And by the time I had, when I had transitioned out of the role in June of 2018, I had paid off all of my credit card debt and had built three months of savings from just having my consulting business from October to June. And, I, and I'm doing this as a principal. And so I'm like, man, like, like it had completely for me redefined the level of income that's possible because I had been so used to being underpaid and, and overworking myself in order to, to create peanuts like my first year as teaching my salary was $33,000 as a principal my salary was $70,000 and i was i was still living paycheck to paycheck and within that short amount of time frame of doing something on the side while still running a whole school i was able to completely turn around my financial situation and so it was that experience that completely made me see What's possible and made me see the way that I have been socialized around how you earn money or what level of money you're supposed to earn as an educator that completely was shattered. And then when it came to when the pandemic hit in March of 2020 I had so by this time i had been running my business for, you know, two, three years. I had so many educator friends that had always asked me, you know, well, what what can I do to start a consulting business? And now I'm quarantined to have all this time, <laughs> like I can, you know, begin to figure out some resources. And the other experience that was also driving me was a my personal experience that I just shared of my own consulting business, but also the times where I was on consulting engagements with clients and a team of consultants, and I would not just be the only Black woman in the room; I would be the only person of color on the team, and we're servicing a highly diverse school district. There would be times I would be partnered with people who've never worked in schools. And I'm sitting there listening to their advisement. And I'm like, if you told me that as a principal, I would tell you to get out. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not listening to this level of advice because it's not grounded in, 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 in what's happening on the ground. Um, so I say all that to say that, like, I got this, this passion and fire for You know, in that moment, I thought of all of these these people who I knew would run circles like around some of the consultants who I'd been paired with and saying, and, and many of them were experiences of consultants with white men who have never worked in education before. I immediately thought of all the amazing educators I knew who could run circles around districts and could support and help districts with with some of the greatest issues they're facing because they've already solved them in their classroom or in their school. And the only thing that was holding them back is they didn't know the the basics of how to launch a business. Um, So that's what birthed Get Launch Consulting. um, And and we've been able to support around 200 educators, uh, even within our first year of of an operation. And I'm proud to say the largest subgroup that we serve is Black women. Over 80% of those that enrolled in my program have been Black women. Um, And through the program, we are, you know, redefining what it means to walk in purpose and to know that you actually don't have to sacrifice getting paid in order to walk in your purpose. So I know that was a really long way of answering your question, but uh, that's kind of like, what turned me on into consulting as well as, you know, expanding my impact and helping other educators in that way.
0: Mm. So when you're doing your own uh, coaching and consulting on the, on the leadership level, uh, what are you looking for in a client, right? Because none of us can be all things to all people and none of us want to work with an organization coming in, with a school coming in from the outside and then still having to sort of fight to work with them when they're bringing us in?
1: Yeah. Um, So the first thing is you need to have a budget. So I, I believe that educators need to be comfortable talking about money and need to be comfortable getting paid. And so if you do not have a budget to actually outsource my expertise, then you're not a fit. And so like, I think it's really important to be able to name that because that's one of the the early mindsets that a lot of educators and particularly, I know this through the hundreds of educators that I've been able to work with is our, our profession has socialized us to believe that because we are of service that we actually should not charge or prioritize money in how we do our work. And the reality is, is that that is a perpetuating a cycle of oppression um, that we have the opportunity to break in and to redefine a new way that is actually a revolutionary act on behalf of ourselves and our community. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, and I, I, I do not, I'm not ashamed to name the first thing. is like, you need to have a budget <laughs> like to be able to work with, with me or any consultant, like you, you need to be able to pay folks they their worth. The second thing that I think about is you know, there are, are, I have to be really clear around my lane. So I can do a lot of things. I was a great teacher. I was a great school leader. I've studied equity. I've led with equity. I know a lot of things. I can do a lot of things, but I need to be really clear on my lane, meaning things that not only I do well, because I do a lot of things well, but things that I actually enjoy doing. And like, I'll get out of bed, they inspire me to get out of bed to do. So I say that to say that like, I can coach a teacher around writing a lesson plan. I can coach a teacher around creating a culture of belonging around effective relationships with parents, but that is actually not my lane. Anything at the classroom level is not my lane because I actually don't get energy from it. Like, Again, I can do it, but like, it, it, it does not fuel me and inspire me to get me out of the bed because my brain is, is it gets excited around systems. It gets excited around complexity. And I'm not saying the classroom is not complex because it's one of the most complex places where you're required to leave. And my brain gets really excited to think about what does it actually look like? to move adults, to move systems, to move communities. I get excited by multiplied impact. So that's the second thing that I would name is being really clear on my lane and what gives me energy. And then the third thing is, you know, I have to be really clear on what are the boundaries that I have to have that are gonna actually set me up and the client up to be successful in our partnership. So, you know, I've had some experiences where the client unconsciously was actually me to ask, was expecting me to do work, which actually only they could do. <laughs> where I'm like, I like I, I can't be the principal. You're the principal. So like, I can't, it is actually not in the best interest of kids and community for me to do that. You have to do that. Now I can coach you through that, but I cannot own that work as an outside person who is not a part of your community. Um, so that's another thing that I just, and when I'm thinking about fit, it's like, what is the person's goals? Does that respect and acknowledge my boundaries? Is that actually going to, is, does that center kids and communities? Um, and if it if, if, if feels misaligned to me, then that would be an opportunity that wouldn't be a fit.
0: Well, mm. I'm not expecting what I'm getting today, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so you're doing this work you head over to Harvard and then you're like okay let me get other teachers on board which is what this podcast is all about which is what my documentary the entrepreneur is all about and you're how did how did you come up with your program for get launched uh because one of the things that happens With people who start out this start this thing typically, you go present at conferences and you're starting to kind of build a name for yourself within certain circles. And then an administrator or someone, maybe someone reaches out to you on Twitter or something and say, Hey, can you come present at this conference or can you do this? And what are your rates? And you're kind of like, what? Mm -hmm. And you get the first check and the first check hmm being a teacher salary right you, you you know you're a teacher and let's so and you just do something and all of a sudden someone hands you a $3000 check now that can be, get you real exciting cuz you're saying oh my right. gosh look at what i bring home every month and look at this one day situation right i'm in okay i'm in but that's not a business right you just had a one offer but right. in order to right <laughs> but in order to build a business right you need a system and you need right. something in place to where you can actually sign contracts with schools for four weeks, six weeks, three months, etc so that you're not quote unquote owning a job but you are actually establishing a business. How did you learn all of those things?
1: Yeah. Um, so I mean, when I started, I I did not have a blueprint. Like I was truly figuring things out as I was going. Um, was blessed to know people who I respected and trust who were doing consulting that you know I could tap into and and ask questions. Um, but. Part of this, I think, you know, and this is what I talked about, you know, a lot to folks in my program is, you know, when you're used to being an amazing, amazing educator where you get results, like you work really hard, you come to believe that you can intellectualize yourself out of any problem. Where it's like, well, if I just read about it, if I go, you know, study or like read a book, like I'll be able to find the answer when actually in entrepreneurship you learn through doing. So it's like, you you actually, the longer you sit and try and think about something, the longer you lose money. So like, I just need you to experiment and try some stuff. So in my program, I have a framework. It's a nine part framework that's based off of three phases. And I built that framework, A, from my own experience, but before I even launched the program, I probably did maybe 20 or 30 one-on-one consultations with educators who were looking to make the pivot into entrepreneurship. And there are some things it was like in my business where it's almost like a great teacher, where it's like, you are unconsciously doing things. And then when someone asks you to actually articulate what you were doing, you're like, now, what did I do again? Like, I just, it, it, I just did it because I've been, I've, it's just a muscle I've been flexing for a certain amount of time that I, it's hard for me to articulate. Those one-on-one consults helped me articulate what the steps were that I actually took to be able to build my framework. And so, my framework has three phases, and each phase has three levers. Um, the two, you know, the point of your question of you know this this transition into actually making a business, like the first phase of my framework is clarity, and part of and this is the foundation of a business, and also the catch twenty two of being an educator of our profession has required us to wear so many hats that when it comes down to starting a business and you have to solve one problem, it's like... It is in in the lever I call 99 problems, but pick one where that is one of the most challenging things for an educator to do when they're starting their consulting business. Is figuring out what's the one problem my business is going to solve because I've been so used to literally solving hundreds of problems, even in just in a classroom, there are hundreds of problems within one day, but in your business, you need to pick one. And going back to my criteria, what I was talking about in my own consulting business, it should be something that gives you energy. And that's the other thing of our profession is so often, and I think this is you know, not exclusive to education, but oftentimes we're forced to do things that we don't actually enjoy. <laughs> Where it's like, but that's just a part of the job. But now it's your business, you have a choice. You can actually do the thing you like and enjoy to do. But because for so long you've been on autopilot or been going through the motions that you actually have to ask yourself, what do you actually enjoy? And so that's the first phase is clarity and then getting clear on how you're uniquely positioned to solve that problem. The second phase is the build phase where you actually get really clear on the foundations of your business between your target client, your service model, as well as your pricing. And then the last phase of the framework is actually launching your business. And I always say this with a caveat, because this is another way that us as educators, we will attempt to self-sabotage our business is we think we can't do anything until we launch. And it's like, no, you launched the moment you had the idea of your business. So you've already launched. This is just you inviting the rest of the world into your business. So don't think you can't accept a contract until you've quote unquote launched. No, <laughs> like if the contract is there, take the contract if, if it meets your terms. But the last phase around launching is actually going through you know, the pieces of your branding, of actually thinking through the funnel of your business of what are the different ways that you're actually bringing a client along on their journey of getting to know you to eventually become a client. Um, and, and actually thinking through how you're inviting the world into your business. So those are some of the pieces that we set the foundation of in the program to your point of having people moving from, all right, you had a one-time engagement to actually running a business.
0: Mm. So let's go back a little bit because earlier you talked about how you yourself had to figure out you're a systems person. And even though you can do all of these things, systems is what gets you energized, is what gets you out of bed. And I love how you said 99 problems, choose one. Love that, I wish I could steal it because I love that so (laughs) much. And when you're working with teachers and you're trying to get them again to say, Pick one because you need a lane, because you have to niche down. Which y'all businesses right. say that, right? But, right. And, and I talk about it on, on, on my show. But the thing is, it's important because, one, you need to have that level of expertise for yourself. People out there need to know you are one of the go-to people for that. And it also helps you in building your business because you're not trying to chase Everything you're trying to build this one thing, right? How do you get educators given what you talked about earlier? The job is so much that they turn around and say, This is the one thing I'm going to be doing, this is the one problem I'm going to be solving, and get the other stuff out of their head. How, how, I mean, I, I look, I know it's proprietary, so I don't need the secret sauce. But how do you begin to get them to sort of just, again, not get so wrapped up in saying, I got to solve it all. I got to do it all. I got to bring all of my classroom experience to the table. I just need to find one thing and keep it moving.
1: Yeah. So one of the resources um, that is, is really helpful in this area that we talk about in the program um, but anybody could, could leverage the resource. It's a book called The Big Leap um, by Gay Hendricks, uh, which is a phenomenal book. And, if, and I think everybody should read it in particular if you're moving into entrepreneurship. Um, but one of the frameworks that the author introduces within that book is around your zone of excellence. Well, they actually named four zones. Um, there's the three of the four, your zone of confidence, zone of excellence, and zone of genius. And so your zone of confidence are things that you can do, but like you actually are, are, are either creating a bottleneck or like you are actually messing something up when you are in your zone of confidence. So for example, like I am my own personal business. I have an OBM, an online business manager who handles all of our, our project management and behind the scenes operations. And, because like, I, I'm, a, I'm a systems thinker, so I can think through systems, but the building of the system, like the automations, all of that, that is my zone of competence. So it's like, if I had a tiny budget, I could do it and figure it out. I'm gonna watch some YouTube videos. But every time I step out of my lane and get in her business and do her job, I break something. <laughs> this is my zone of competence. It is, it is something that if I have no money to hire anybody, I could do it. But like the reality is, is I actually should not spend any time doing that. So technology um, or getting, you know, system, tech systems, logistics figured out for oftentimes for a lot of people is a zone of competence. Your zone of excellence is something that you generally have a level of expertise in. And oftentimes people get, are giving you feedback that you do so well. That's why it's called your zone of excellence. Now, what's what's tricky is, your zone of excellence is different from your zone of genius, your zone of excellence, because your zone of excellence, most of the time doesn't feel like work. But your zone of genius, the way that I think about it, is when you are operating in your zone of genius, you are literally floating, it feels like you're floating, there's a new sense of ease that you have, when you are, are tied in and nailed down to your zone of genius. And another way that I think about and I talk about in the program is your zone of genius is oftentimes the intersections of multiple zones of excellence. So if you are, you know, a, um, uh, I'll give you an example, a profile of one of my clients who is an amazing educator and teacher. They're great at culture and a part of their identity um, is they identify as LGBTQIA. So they could just work with teachers around building culture, or they could work with LGBTQIA teachers around what it actually looks like to prioritize their wellness and build a culture, um, uh, an effective culture for them and LGBTQIA students. So like, I give that as an example of like, What are multiple areas of of excellence? And rather than keeping them so compartmentalized and separated, what are actually the intersections that because it's so unique to you, two, three, sometimes maybe four zones of excellence that when you begin to intersect them, it's so unique to you that actually it's a zone of genius for you. So that's another way to think about it.
0: Mm, I like that. I like that. So... When you're getting them to look at this niche in their building, and now we're talking about, because you said it's a lot part, but now you're talking about your brand. And a lot of times people, when they start thinking about brand, the first thing they jump to is colors and and logos and fancy stuff. I see you smiling over that fancy picture <laughs> stuff, right? And they don't think about that the brand is really about that that inner essence of core of who you are. When you're getting educated to, to, to dive deep into that and to do that type of work, what is that conversation like?
1: Yeah, so uh, the first thing, uh, so the first level of the framework, so before we even jump to branding, which is module seven, um, in the program module zero, meaning it's your pre-work is get your mind right. <laughs> and so you need to unpack and uncover your mindsets and it's not a destination. It's your, it's a journey, but in that module, I name these are the common mindsets that come up for every, everybody and in particular educators, and you need to explore them, but and know them now, because it's going to come up for you as you go on this journey. So one of the mindsets that we talk about that comes up in that branding journey is mindsets around visibility. Like people do not want to be in the spotlight. They're afraid to talk about themselves. What will people think if I say this or post this or if I go on live, all of this just ick (laughs) around taking up space, which for me, you know, with that conversation sounds like is like. That is actually what keeps the cycle of oppression going is when people who are so values driven, proximate to the community, the cycle of oppression and internal oppression looks like us being afraid to take up space and and thinking around all of the what ifs when those who have been so proximate to privilege that they're not aware of the privilege that they hold They have no qualms about taking up space. People who've never worked in schools, which rich white men going to the moon? (laughs) Like like they, they have no hesitation around talking crazy nonsense on social media, taking up space. Meanwhile, those of us who are so values driven that are so good for our kids and community. The only way to break that cycle is we have actually got to come, we've got to counteract that force two, three, four, five times. And the only way that happens is by us taking up space. Like the only way for us that to happen is for us to actually like put ourselves out there, like build the website, go on social media, go a lot, like whatever, and we talk about the systems part of branding of different branding levers but before we even get to that like there's so the mindset part of of what does it actually mean to reframe the purpose of why you need to get visible and why that's a revolutionary act and why owning your narrative um, is is a a source of power like you need to actually tap into that um, because the reality is is there is someone who is experiencing such a deep pain point that you have the solution to, who are you to to, to say you're not gonna talk about it? Like, who are you to hide? <laughs> like, like there's someone waiting on you to take up space. And meanwhile, you're worried about, well, what are other people gonna think? That's all ego and that's all internalized oppression. So that's a huge part of the conversation that we have to have before we, we step into branding. And one of the ways, to your point, that that unconsciously shows up for people is they do the fancy busy work of like trying to make their logo when it's like, is that bringing you a contract of of making? So like you spending time in Canva trying to make logos and social media graphics. Meanwhile, you have 10, 15 people you could email right now and get on the phone and be talking about your business. But you're in Canva trying to figure out a logo and, and wasting time. Um, so that's that's kind of just a, a a preview of some deep deep mindset conversations that we have to have.
0: Oh yeah, but well, y'all, them show notes gonna be there because you need to join <laughs> this program. Okay. You need to because I hear what you're saying. Like, look, you gotta get out there and show those receipts. Mm-hmm. Because as you mentioned earlier, there are some people that I know on Twitter that before the pandemic, I never saw. Now, I'm not saying I saw everything that they've ever written or heard every speech they ever gave, but I never saw them do anything related to online learning. Now, it was technology related, right? They they were technology adjacent. They were in that area, but specifically teaching online, designing classes online, never heard that stuff cross right. their lips. Right. All of a sudden... Schools got money, right? And they everywhere, right? Right? And I'm like, what the Jimmy Crack Coin is going on? Mm. I almost unfollowed somebody. I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, and we we friends. I almost wouldn't follow them because I'm looking at them going, like, <laughs> like what you yeah. doing? Like, yeah, you know, I ain't never, I've never seen you get in this lane ever yeah and now here you are and because of this person's name they getting paid yeah and don't yeah, have I, the receipts and doing the work yeah like i got the receipts
1: right. And, right and
0: and so i always tell educators show your receipts you know you're teaching have your blog have your blog share what you're doing in your classroom have your vlog Talk, talk about how you create these lessons. Uh, create video tutorials. Show your receipts. Because you got to, pe- you know, the people got to know who you are and what you bring to the table.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so it's just, boy, I'm telling you, boy, when you talk yeah. about some folks got confidence just to show out and take up space. Oh, you hit me Listen, with that. Listen, there's
1: a lot of folks that are loud and wrong. Just loud and wrong. <laughs> and meanwhile... Like some of the best teachers I know will close their door and just do their thing. And here's, and here's the thing that I tell the people in my program. Those of us from marginalized communities cannot afford to be humble. Mm. Like we, we cannot afford, because being humble will get you left out of the room. It will cause you to not have a seat at the table. We cannot afford to be humble and the way to reframe this is in this is i believe this is also a cycle of oppression of how you know we people will will name well that's bragging where people of color have a disproportional expectation to to not name their accomplishments because it will make other people in positions of privilege feel uncomfortable of like well who are you to name those things and now you've activated all of my insecurities because I know I haven't accomplished half of those things. And so part of that is reframing of you are not bragging; you're stating facts. So mm-hmm. a fact is that I was a I was a principal who increased test scores. I increased culture. I increased parent engagement. Like all of those are facts. A fact is I have a doctorate from Harvard. That's not bragging; it's a fact. And so like. That's a part of like the reframing too of we've been conditioned and socialized, particularly those of us from marginalized communities, to believe that when we speak about the things that we have accomplished, that it's bragging when actually that is in a, a that is a way internalized oppression shows up to keep people in positions of power who are mediocre and wrong, and it keeps the system and the structure in place because we don't offend them or you know, we don't make them uncomfortable. We can't, God forbid. A mediocre white man is uncomfortable. <laughs> and so um, those are, are things that we have to we have to reframe. Um, and, and those are things that you have to do in your business. So you have to do the mindset work so that way you're positioned to do that.
0: Mm. Oh whew. okay. So um before we go, how can an educator do that work. So, so it's sort of another sort of a little mindset question, but do the work of actually seeing themselves as a business and understanding sort of that entrepreneurial mindset around the money. Because I know you, you know, you know, you had gave me some kernels earlier in the interview about this whole situation of. I'm worthy, I should get paid this amount of money. Uh, I'm worth it, my experiences say that I am worth it. And when you approach some educators, they don't, the whole idea of charging for something that they do, particularly when you say it, cause earlier, you know, you already said, look, I'm here for the black babies, I'm here doing this. And so many educators, like no one, no one ever, 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 and I'm going to say this to a politician. If, look, any politician who ever may listen to my show, any parent who may listen to my show, who loves to talk some smiggity smack about teachers, nobody joins this profession for the money. Right. Because none of us are making that kind of money for right. us for us to be dealing with what we have to deal with from outside people who are not in the school system and have absolutely no idea what we're doing. And so when you are like, I'm investing my life into this because I so believe in this so much that I'm joining a profession that more than likely I'm going to have to get a second job to do some stuff,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? So I love it that much that I'm putting my life on the line to do this. When you have to have that conversation with them about I get, I get that. I, I, I'm with you. I, I Look, I, I'm with you in that same boat. I joined this field for the same reason. But I need you to readjust your mindset about the money. Right. How do you get them to take that step back and to understand that you are not betraying the profession? You are not betraying the reason you got into the field to actually charge. And I don't get into people's rates, right? So if you want those people who say, look, I'm $10,000 a day, that's on you. If You want the people who say you $5,000 a day, that's on you. All I am when I talk to teachers is whatever price you set, make sure you set a price and you make people honor that price. Right. Don't let Don't let people... You know, you come to you and say my rate is five and they come back well, it's three, when we know they're gonna pay somebody else five if they don't pay, you know what I'm saying? So don't 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 let that conversation go. But I'm just right. just figuring it out because for me, I'm okay with talking about my money now, but it, it yeah, but you said, but it took, yeah, it took me yeah. some it's time to journey. get there. Let's it's get there. a journey. Yeah, so it's how, a journey. So how do you get them to get to that point?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll share, I'll show three things. Um, So the first thing is part of this is, is reframing money as a a tool, right? Mm. So money is a source of power. And part of the reason why I think there is so much fear around money is because we have seen more of how money has been abused as a source of power and abused with power over. We have not seen lots of public examples of how money is used as a tool with power with. And so part of of that's the first piece is reframing that money is a necessary tool to dismantle systems of oppression, period. Like that is my, my belief. And so I can, I can most certainly organize people. We can go to the school board meeting. We can protest. And I also, I, I, I never want there to be another pandemic. If there is, I also want to be the person who writes the checks to cover everybody's hotspots. Like, I don't want to have to go to a Jeff Bezos or a Bill Gates. Like, I want to be able to write the check for the hotspots rather than having to, to negotiate with people who aren't within the community for the, 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 tool in order to create what needs to be true for our kids and community. so that's the first thing is actually reframing um that that money is not the 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 evil source it's the hand that it's in <laughs> and so let me tell you who who i trust with a million dollars an educator you give an educator a million dollars let me tell you the, the freedom they would not only create for themselves and therefore the freedom they create for other people, that's who I want to have a million dollars, as an educate plus, a million plus. So that's the first thing is just reframing money as a necessary uh, source of power and tool to be able to dismantle systems of oppression that are continuing to keep our, our students and families in um, experiencing in equitable conditions. The second thing that, um, you know, is, is and I think this is, that creates a lot of the money issues is people just set prices and they just pick a number they haven't researched they haven't ran their own numbers and so therefore they can't get confident in their pricing the first person you have to convince of your pricing is yourself and so if you didn't have a strategy or actually you know taken the necessary steps to actually determine why that is your number mm-hmm. then you need to start over and so that's the second piece that we talked about next in my, my program I provide my uh, students enrolled in the program with an actual calculator to help them determine their their ceiling or excuse me, their floor, and they can go anywhere from there. But at minimum, what do you want to make what are your business expenses, how many hours are you available to work use that information to determine what is the floor, you can't go anything lower than that. Because if you go lower you're either not going to be able to make your salary you're not going to be able to cover your business expenses. like. You're not gonna be able to cover taxes. (laughs) Like you need to have a strategy, run the numbers. And the last thing that I would just name for people is go to your local school district, review their meeting notes and see the contracts that they approve for recent vendors and and consultants. You will see how much people are getting paid. And some of those experiences you may wear, maybe you was in the PD. You will learn really quickly The money exists. The money exists. It's just a matter of you believing in yourself and going after it because you deserve it.
0: We're going to close this right here. That was, oh. Mm, 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 mm. I'm glad you said that last, oh, that last piece was such a gem, people. Oh my gosh. This episode, oh, I Look, I usually do our episodes on Monday and Wednesday. It's going to be hard to hold this one to Monday because I want to release this tomorrow. <laughs> I'm telling you. This one, mm. oh my gosh. Thank you, Dr. Erica, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome. Now, people, you know I'll do this. It's podcast episodes going to be on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Simplecast, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. I need you to subscribe and I need you to share it. And though I am on all major podcast platforms, I am trying to grow on Apple Podcasts. So I'm trying to be found and I'm trying to get Oprah on the show and I want her to know that we're doing big things around here. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Erica Jordan Thomas, for dropping so many gems. And thank you again for checking out another episode of the Dr. Wheel Show. As always, people, invest in you. EDU. Peace.